You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. This is China's President Xi Jinping giving the keynote speech to begin the historic and unprecedented third term as leader of the People's Republic of China. In the modern era from the 19th century, China was gradually relegated to a semi-colonial, semi-feudal country, being bullied and split by powers and fraught with wars and turmoils, devastation and killing. After the founding of the Communist Party of China, it has closely united and led the Chinese people of all ethnic groups over the struggle of the past 100 years, erasing our national humiliation. The Chinese nation has achieved a tremendous transformation. It has stood up, grown rich, and become strong. This was a speech that touched on the familiar themes of security, the need to modernize the military, and oppose foreign forces, and reaffirming the claim of reunification with Taiwan. But what about China's economy? What of the numerous crackdowns on the tech sector and banking over the past years? And what of the historic drop in China's birth rate and its aging population? There's a lot to talk about with what just happened in Beijing and what comes next, so let's get to it. Welcome to the third in our mini-series on the two sessions, otherwise known as Lianghui, the annual parliamentary sessions in China. My name is Holly Chick, back in the office here at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, having just spent a week with our team in Beijing. Right now, if we do a quick search of headlines about Xi's speech, you can see many news outlets have picked up on a four-word quote And those words are Great War of Steel, in reference to China's armed forces. But there's a lot more he talked about, which is worth discussing. In particular, how China is going to return to its high rate of economic growth in the face of slowing global demand, and how it's going to develop self-sufficiency in technology, when the Biden administration's doing everything it can to restrict China's access to semiconductors. Let's get to work. Wendy Wu is the editor for our political economy desk based in Beijing, and she's having a very busy week. Great to speak with you, Wendy. Thanks for the invitation. Nice to be back here again. Yeah, before I ask you about the two sessions and what it tells us about what to expect in China's economic policies. Can I start with the news this morning? So we're speaking on the Wednesday morning after the two sessions ended. We've just had a major announcement on statistics showing us the state of the Chinese economy. What are some of the numbers that really stand out for you? The National Bureau of Statistics just released the first two months economic indicators after a uh, sort of the weak export and import data. This for the industry output, retail sales and investments, those are the three major economic indicators to gauge the uh, resilience of China's economy. And all those three Uh, indicators have all grown in the past two years and indicating that China's economy has showed signs, solid signs of the recovery. However, it is not a sharp uh, rebound. But uh, among the three indicators, 
uh, fixed investment uh, assets growth uh, was better than the previous year. Uh, it stood at 5.5% in the first two months, up from the 5.1% at the end of the last year. And among them, one sign that can tell is that the property sector, the investment for the real estate sector still drops. However, the pace has been slowed down uh, from um, since 2021. So we can tell that the supports from the governments on the economy still played a part, but uh, there are still some hope, which may not be quite solidified that the economy recovery is on the way. But we will continue to see more uh, indicators from on the ground about this traffic, about the logistics and the upcoming data for March, which can offer more evidence about how the China's economy has performed at the start of this year. Wendy, what about the unemployment rate? What does that tell us? Employment rate, especially the headline uh, jobless rate, which stood at 5.6%, is higher than the government's uh, target, but it is also higher than the previous months. But we need to bear in mind that it is a combined uh, number for January and February together, which uh, we need to consider the seasonal changes, uh, usually the China's New Year. Uh, force in those months, and uh, it is a natural that it's a natural uh, factor that the unemployment rate rose a bit. But also, meanwhile, it also indicated that China still face a high a high pressure to create enough jobs for this year. Uh, that is also the government priority, especially for the new government uh, at the start of their first term. Beijing has emphasized many times that the stable job creation is the top priority and the foundation for a very solid economic recovery for this year. So this is so this figure, which is not quite perfectly to reflect China's job market situation, but it's also important to gauge the situation on the ground. Uh, how the Beijing can solve these quite painful issues since past year. So let's put that in context with the just-announced policies about China's economy. The goal for growth was set at a modest rate, and contrasting with Xi Jinping's speech, mentioning a great wall of steel was the need to attract more foreign investment. What can you tell us about those policies? I want to elaborate a bit on this part. Uh, when Xi Jinping mentioned about that word, he particularly referred to uh, China needs to double down on its efforts to build up the military uh, military capability, and China needs to become a uh, modernized and a strong a military of the medium term. And it does not refer to the foreign how China will try to attract its foreign investment. So, uh, if we focus on the economy, Chinese government did uh, set the economic growth target as well as the uh, jobless rates at a moderate um, range. Um, it, it is largely going to be a, a easy win for the new government. But in the government reports and also the those uh, leaders' discussion with the NPC's delegations uh, last week, we can feel there is a sense of urgency and a great emphasize on the need to tackle the financial risks and as well as other economic risks 
in the overall economic development, as well as a strong push for China to address the technology bottlenecks for the coming years. So a moderate economic growth will leave enough room for the new government is uh, now is leading by Li Qiang uh, to handle properly the economic risks and external headwinds. And for the foreign investments, I think that uh, uh, Chinese leadership, is, uh, including the President Xi Jinping and the Li, Li Qiang, they still trying to uh, cement their confidence on the Chinese market, especially when the economy is recovering. Uh, they want to uh, them to expand their investment in Chinese market. Uh, meanwhile, they also trying to play up the confidence of the private sector, which has been put a great hope this year in creating jobs and stabilizing growth. During the week, we reported that Xi Jinping had delivered a charm offensive to private entrepreneurs, in which he was quoted as saying the private firms should have a sense of responsibility, brotherhood and love. While being rich, what did he mean by that? I mean, we need to look back to the previous years when there were indeed some very negative comments targeting private sectors, which combined with the economic impact of the zero COVID policies and the previous uh, crackdown, such as tech firms and private tutoring sectors. Those are, have been quite concerned for the private sector, as well as the foreign investments here. However, uh, the government has to release a very clear message to the sector. Private entrepreneurs are a crucial part for the China's economy, job creation, tax revenue, and they play a key role in the innovation and uh, technology uh, upgrading, especially given the uh, current situation of the geopolitical complication, the heightened rivalry with the U.S., uh, the high-tech containment from the U.S., and China is now at a uh, urgent stage to step up its uh, economic security and the technology uh, self-reliance. It has to rely on the private sector. In order to do that, it first it needs to uh, dispel the doubts about uh, and concerns of private entrepreneurs uh, about their role and uh, in the economy. So Xi Jinping and uh, Premier Li Qiang, they sent very clear message that don't worry too much about that. And our policy uh, will still be very supportive for you, especially for this year. But however, it also indicated that they need to follow the, the, the policy guidance from the top line. Wendy, it's very interesting because we've seen crackdowns on the tech sector and the tutoring sector. What has been the reception from Beijing's business community? Mm, we can say from the discussion and NPC delegation briefings that it has been quietly open and openly discussed and proposed by many people, including academias, including the entrepreneurs, about that we, the government needs to double down on its efforts to protect the interest of the private entrepreneurs. Uh, there were discussions and proposals that China needs to 
um, improve the legal protection of that. But so far, it is the expectation are high, but the business community is still eagerly waiting for any concrete and substantial moves, actions taken by the government to really address their concerns. And this is also shared by the foreign investors. They want to see that the new government will convey a very clear message uh, through concrete actions that to address the long grievance by them, which are the uh, policy uncertainties and policy unpredictabilities. Over the past uh, uh, four or five decades, China's success is largely based on its policy stability, which is a major factor for its attraction to foreign investment as well as to private sectors. So that is one thing which is urgently needed to be seen by the foreign investor and the private sector that they can fully be convinced that they got the signal and support from the central government. Wendy, in China, we're talking about foreign investment and self-reliance. Are people in Beijing talking about the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank and its spillover impacts? Yeah, it has been one of the hotly uh, discussed uh, topics in China right now. Uh, to the uh, to this, uh, impact on China's economy and financial markets, so far the impact is largely limited. But it is a, also a lesson for the Chinese financial sector and the regulators to check and to learn from the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, how to better its uh, financial regulation, especially that this year the government reports have showed great concern on the risks from the external markets. Um, it's particularly single out that uh, the cross-region, cross-sector and cross-country risks from the financial markets are increasing. And we also need to bear in mind that last year, China has been hit by the rural banking uh, crisis, uh, which uh, have been centered on the Henan province. It also it has also sounded alarm uh, to a Chinese regulator that more efforts are needed to guard against any risks which would undermine China's financial stability. And China's central bank also issued a statement this morning uh, to follow up the two sessions discussion. And it's also said that China needs to continuously safe against and address financial risks and need to set up a financial safety network to step up its financial stability and uh, improve it's a preparation to address emergencies. Wendy, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much for your hard work and we'll continue to follow the Political Economy Desk. Thanks. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com slash newsletters. If you listen to our two sessions preview podcast from 12 days ago, it's safe to say much of what you've heard reported since then has come as no surprise, because much of the ministerial announcements were previewed by my colleague on the China Desk, William Zheng. Welcome back. 
Hi, happy to see you again, Holy. And first of all, a disclaimer: I don't have a crystal ball to gaze. Quite a lot of people ask me what, how we、uh, managed to get、uh, most of the names correct. But in fact, if you know the party politics, largely most of the things are already decided on the October's twentieth Party Congress. So you don't need a crystal ball. William, you're just a good journalist. Thank you. Thanks. William, we opened this podcast with a quote from Xi Jinping's speech, which included some very familiar themes for China watchers. But did you pick up any specific emphasis or references in his keynote? It is not a very long speech as compared to his twentieth Party Congress speech, when he presented his long, more than thirty thousand words report to the Central Committee. That's the full report, and his current speech at the closing of MPC. Is very much a summary of his work report on China's directions going ahead and all this. So that's why overall it's quite a balanced thing to present at the end of China's legislature. He didn't really stress on anything, but he actually covers everything. It's very typical China when the top boss who have just gotten his third term, unprecedented third term. So what he want to cover is we need to do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and we cannot just do one thing or forget about the rest. So basically, his tone has been very balanced. Basically, two things are there: development and security. This is nothing new. Where he had been stressing on this since the 19th Party Congress, he had been talking about China should watch its、uh, security internally and externally. And while many other media outlets were picking up on the PLA angle, on Taiwan angle, but、uh, if you read his speech, that came up on the much later part, which. It's not saying that it's not important, but still, it shows that his priority for now. Would be very much internal looking, trying to take care of China's、uh, ailing economy and try to resuscitate the growth potentials. However, in the longer term, of course, he will have to take care of something that's unavoidable in front of him. That's Taiwan. Of course, he will have to make sure that China's military had proper manpower, equipment, and all this in case when he have to take action. But if you read his Chinese speech, he did say that reunification of China is 提中之意 for China's rejuvenation. 提中之意 means it's it's very subtle. It can mean that it got to be part of it. It can also mean that、uh, it's best to have it. Still, it shows a very resolute political gesture towards Taiwan. Still, so basically, I did not see a major departure. Of Beijing's previous stance on all the issues on internal security, external security, and、uh, diplomacy, and even on PLA military side, it's largely a recap of his previous stance. I was wondering too about the references to global development and governance in Xi's speech, and the spectacular coincidence of Saudi Arabia and Iran announcing that they had signed up to a Beijing-brokered peace deal almost the same day as that speech happened. What are your thoughts on that? At first, as a political journalist, I thought that、uh, Chinese、uh, diplomats tribute. To the two sections and also to their boss's、uh, unprecedented third term, 
Just like previously, if you watch China's uh, CCTV now, you will see that plenty of such uh, major investment infrastructure projects are timed to be launched around the two-section period. And they all call it a tribute to Liang Huixianli and all that. I, I thought, uh, oh, well, this time the diplomats can do something similar. That's one. But number two, previously when she was talking about this uh, global development initiative or global security initiative, many people thought that it's just hot air. What will be the concrete actions? And I have spoke to some uh, diplomatic sources and many of them were a little bit surprised. It really came to many people as a shock. And uh, this is the first time people realize that the Global Security Initiative actually means something and China is doing something on it. I would say that, number one, as we know, China is always top down. So when she opened his mouth, when she said some concepts, now it's just another testimony that he means business. He will really push his guys in that aspect to do something this time. There is a Beijing brokered peace between Saudi Arabia and Iran. How long would it last? We don't know. But this is no doubt a very good start for regional peace. Right? It brought me to the second point. When America is talking about democracy as the key value that it brings to, to its partners and China took the anger of peace. I don't care about your ideology. Let me be your peace broker. And Indeed, looks like Beijing does have some space to play in this aspect. In our previous episode, you said there were two press conferences to really watch. One from the new foreign minister, Qin Gang, and the other one from China's new premier, Li Qiang. What did you get from Li Qiang's press conference? First of all, it's his debut. And he did present a different image as compared to Li Keqiang, his predecessor. Li Chang is, is a lot more down-to-earth, and you can see that he has a little bit of the Zhejiang accent. And he covered many questions. The first question, he has already stated loud clearly that there would be a new party-state relationship. Why? When he was asked about uh, what's your plan for China's economy and all this, he basically said that the plan has already been drawn up by the party last October. And now what I have a plan is the implementation plan of the party's blueprint. So that's very clear that there will only be one decision-making center, that's the party, and the state council under his care will be the execution arms and legs to push forward all these directions that the party decided. So this is very clear from him which if anyone still have doubts on will the state council and the party central will continue to have friction or not, I think that's a gone thing. Going forward, it became a much streamlined command structure where the party makes the decision and the state council and the ministries will do the follow-ups. And the other thing is, when he talk about, I want to send the guys sitting in office to grassroots, he said, 高手在民间, right? Means you can find the good masters among the people or in the grassroots. Previous people's doubt on him. 
saying that he did not have central governments working. However, if you re- look at how Xi select people, he is no longer picking up those people who only have central government relationships. He is always stressing that 宰相必起于州郡 means a good premier must have solid local experience to settle the real local problems. Then he will know what China is like. It will be more difficult for the ground to cheat him or to mislead him because he came from all these groundworks, right? So this is very, very interesting gesture from Li Qiang where he strikes to have a difference between himself and Li Keqiang who is known to know a lot of economic theories and all this, but Li Qiang is saying that I am going back to the facts and find China solutions for China's problems. William, were you surprised he answered a question about COVID management and the Shanghai lockdown? Right. He was the Shanghai party chief when Shanghai was hit by a huge wave of Omicron outbreaks. And later, there's 47 days lockdown in China's commerce and financial center. Actually, many people say that it would dent his political record. That was why many people were surprised that he still made it to the premiership. However, personally, I have long told many of my friends that uh, he should not be held solely responsible for Shanghai's lockdown or Shanghai's outbreak. Because number one, in China, if you want to lock down a major city, it cannot be the city's own decision. You've got to escalate it to your higher authorities for approval by the central committee or by the standing committee members. So you can't say that Li Qiang decided to go for lockdown or who decided it's a collective decision. So to say that Shanghai's lockdown problem was all Li Qiang's fault is not really 100% accurate. It was very interesting to look at his answer to those questions. I'm little surprised. We all thought that the presser would be based on more forward-looking questions. Uh, what are you going to do next year and all this? But actually, they actually allowed a question to recap the COVID. That shows that, number one, he wants to defend China's overall COVID track record. Number two, he wants to defend his own work in Shanghai's uh, COVID containment. That's quite a brave gesture overall. Now, Li Chang is a longtime aide and member of Xi's inner circle. And your story noted that this means that Li is expected to have more leeway to express his thoughts in public without being seen as a challenge to Xi. What will that mean in reality? What kinds of things we might hear? Interestingly, you have seen some news reports saying that Li Chang has played a critical role in China's COVID opening up, right? And for us, actually, within our newsroom, we know that there are quite a few Xi's close uh, lieutenants has played similar roles, like Guangdong's party boss uh, Huang Kuiming. If you notice, Guangzhou was the first city got a full open-up order. Why were Guangzhou was able to do it so resolutely? But at the northern side, when the city like Shi Jiazhuang and all these, they took initiative to open up, then they said, no, 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 we withdraw the memo. It's quite obvious to us that Huang Kuiming must have gave more direct and clear order. And Huang, a Politburo member, he had chance 
to meet Xi. And Huang is one of the Zhejiang cadres who had worked under Xi during the president's staying in Zhejiang. So they have a lot of trust among themselves with Xi and his new team. The biggest word is actually unity. They all know that Xi is the boss and they have served him for a very long time and they have forged their relationship, their trust for the past more than two, three decades. And when they propose to Xi, Xi will listen and sometimes even give them more leeways to do things. I, I would think that number one, after this year's Lianghui, China has completed its five years uh, uh, political cycle where we see the installation of party and state leaderships. They are in sync now. All Xi's key lieutenants. So they have only one direction, that's Xi's direction. So it's actually easier for them to work. They don't have to listen to other bosses having different opinions. So it can be good and bad. If China has to make a wrong decision, then it could be more disastrous too because it will be carried out more thoroughly, like the final period of COVID. So I think in reality, Xi will be able to listen to his close, most trusted uh, cadres more. And it seems to us that people like Li Qiang are able to provide the feedback to him more directly. And she is capable of listening to this. That's why she has been calling people to do field trips, to go to the grassroots to find the problems now. She can uh, be able to execute much faster with a trusted team. That's basically what we are going to see. Of course, while we say two sections has ended, but there's big, huge tail that's lingering. That's the overall plan for the reform of party and uh, state organs. I think it's uh, likely scheduled in this afternoon where most of the observers saying that this would be a major effort for Xi to consolidate more power to the party side, where the state council will primarily be uh, left as a command center for China's economy and social growth. There have been rumors about further consolidation of uh, security apparatus. The Ministry of Public Security and Ministry of uh, State Security might merge under some kind of a new commission. At the State Council side, there has been an announcement saying that uh, China will build a new science commission to oversee the science self-reliance effort and also new super finance watchdog to oversee the, the, the country's uh, ailing financial sector and a big data bureau to keep China's overall data secure. So let's see when would the big plan came. But that would be a very clear indication of Xi's next move. Thank you very much, William, for your hard work following the two sessions. We will continue to read your stories on scmp.com. Oh, most happy to. Our reporting on the policies announced at the two sessions and the state of the Chinese economy, as well as analysis of everything everywhere else that's happening this week in China's geopolitics, is online right now at scmp.com. There's many more questions to ask about how China is going to address its youth unemployment and its declining birth rate. And we'll be doing it here on another episode in the Inside China podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks for reviewing us on iTunes. 
It really helps more people find us around the world. So thank you if you're one of the people who do that. My name is Holly Chick. Take care of yourself. Bye for now.